0: Thanks for checking out this sermon at New Beginnings. As a church, we exist to become an authentic biblical community. That transforms our city and impacts the world. With the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to make you aware of a few things before we begin. First, we would love to connect with you on our website, nbbctx.org. There you can find more information about who we are. Additional resources and links to our social media network. As well as an opportunity to give to what God is doing in and through our church. We hope you enjoy this message. Good morning. Welcome to Easter at New Beginnings. If you're a guest with us today, thank you for being our guest. My name is Todd Connets. I serve as one of the pastors here, and uh, I just hope you feel at home um, today as we celebrate uh, the resurrected uh, Jesus this morning. All right, so there's a, a psychiatric condition that you may be familiar with known as separation anxiety. Anybody ever heard of separation anxiety? All right. So some of you parents this morning, you witnessed your kids experiencing separation anxiety as you've taken them to the kids area. You, you know what it's like as a parent for separation anxiety because every parent at some point in your life, you're going to have to peel your kid off like a wet t-shirt and give them right and hand them over. And, and so that's kind of the idea of separation anxiety. I was thinking about that. And a buddy of mine, uh, a few years back, it was when their first child was born Um, They were part of a church, and this was back in the day uh, whenever you took your kid to the nursery, they gave you a pager. And so during the service, you would kind of feel the vibration of the pager, and you would knew that there was something going on with your kid. And so uh, so they were in church service, and their firstborn had, was experiencing some separation anxiety, and she had waken up in the nursery, and she kind of freaked out and didn't see mom and dad. And so they paged them. And so he, being the loving husband, says to his wife, hey, I'll go back. You just enjoy the sermon, and I'll check on her, then I'll slip back in. And so he does, and he's kind of a big fellow. six foot uh, four, or six foot five. He goes back there, and he walks into uh, the nursery area. He shows them. The pager and says, I'm here to check on my baby girl. And he walks into the nursery area, and half of the room is lit and half of the room is dim. And so uh, his daughter was in the crib, and so he walks to the, to the, to the, Area that was dim, and he just finds her crib and he starts patting her on the back and consoling her. Daddy's here, gives her the pacifier, and she kind of calmly, eventually, uh, five minutes later, goes to sleep. And and when she does, he looks over his shoulder, and he did not realize there was somebody else in the room the entire time. There was a lady in the lit part of the room who was nursing her baby, without a cover. I might add. And so he, in the moment, just freaks out because he's like, I am the creepy guy in the room with the girl who's not covered. And so he did what any grown man in his right mind would do in that moment. He hit the deck. He just dives to the floor. And I remember this guy is 6'4", 6'5", and he bear crawls out of there on all fours getting out of the room. Um, separation anxiety. Now, listen, this friend swore me to secrecy. He said, you can use this as a sermon illustration, but do not uh, tell who it is. And so I'm not going to say his name, but his initials are Connor Bales. That's his... (laughs) um, That's a true story. True story. No joke. Separation anxiety is a real thing. According to the American Psychiatric Association, separation anxiety disorder is an excessive display of fear and distress when faced with situations of separation from the home or from a specific attachment figure. So that's what the definition of separation anxiety uh, is. And the reason I bring this up, because here's what I believe. The reality is is that humanity has been born in a state of spiritual separation anxiety. Is that This is the condition we are born in. Here's what I mean. We were created for the sole purpose of being in relationship with God. We were created to know him, to fellowship with him, to, to worship him. That this is the reason we were made. This is innately woven into the fabric of our soul. In fact, Ecclesiastes chapter three, verse eleven says this: that God has placed eternity into the heart of man. That He's placed eternity in the heart of man. What is what is Solomon saying when he says this? He's simply saying this: we've been hardwired for eternity. Is that we were we were created for something that transcends the temporal, physical human experience that we all have. And we were created for something more than just this physical life. We were created for a relationship with God, to know him, to walk with him, to worship him, to make our home in his presence. And this is exactly the way that it was when God created everything. If you go back and read the Genesis account, here's what you'll discover. You'll discover that everything in creation was perfect. And here's why it was perfect. Creation was perfect because the relationship between God and man was perfect. As if there was a perfect relationship, perfect harmony, perfect peace, perfect shalom between God and man. Therefore, all was good in uh, creation, in the universe, and we, 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 man walked with God and experienced this. The presence of God was the home of the heart of man. But something happened. Sin entered the world. And when sin entered the world, it severed the relationship that God uh, created man to have with himself. In that moment, when sin entered the world, uh, we were banished from the presence of God. We were separated from the very person we were created to know and to find life in. And so let me kind of borrow the definition of separation anxiety and kind of plug it into where we are. Uh, We live now with a borrowed from the APA definition of separation anxiety, we live now with an excessive display of fear and distress because we have been separated from home, from God's presence. We we have been separated from the specific attachment figure we were created to enjoy. And this is the root issue in the heart of humanity. This is what Romans chapter 3 verse 23 says this. It says, for all have sinned, And fallen short of the glory of God. And the reason this is important for us to know, because all have sinned, that means every one of us in the room, we have all sinned. That means we've all been born in a state of separation. You see, there's a common link. There's a lot of people in this room. There's over a 1,000 people in this room right now, and here's what we have in common. In the midst of all the diversity and all the differences and the things that we have as far as backgrounds, experiences, and preferences, here's one commonality that we all share in the room. We were created for a relationship with God, but sin has separated that relationship. Is that This is what sin has caused in the heart of, of all of us. The definition for sin... According to Merriam-Webster's Dictionary, which is not the place you typically go for theological truth, but they did actually a pretty good job here. Listen to what their definition is. Sin is a transgression against the law of God. So if you've ever lied, if you've ever stolen anything, if you've ever had evil thoughts in your heart, you've transgressed against the law of God. So sin is a transgression against the law of God. And listen to what it goes on to say in this definition. It is the spoiled state of human nature in which the self is estranged from God. This is the condition that we're in. We are estranged from God. We are born with a separation anxiety. Now listen, why is this so important? Because understanding this explains a lot about our life. It explains a lot about the decisions we make. See, we were created to know God. Eternity in our heart. And because there's an absence of a relationship with God, here's what humanity has perpetually done ever since the fall. We have looked for substitutes to fill the void that God, the God void has created in our life. So here's what I mean. So we jump from relationship to relationship hoping that we can meet the right person, find the right person, have the right experience. And if I can just feel a certain way, then I'll be whole in my life. I'll have meaning and purpose only to find that person and realize they're broken too. Or we try to find it in approval. And so we, we try to find ways to climb the ladder of success. And if I can accomplish certain things and people can think of me a certain way, and then here's what we do. We exhaust our life climbing the ladder of success only to find out that at the top of the ladder is just as lonely as the bottom of the ladder. Or maybe it's it's possessions that we just want to buy things and live in bigger uh, bigger, uh, homes and drive nicer cars and have more luxury and greater experiences. And so we try to amass ourselves with possessions only to find that we're just as miserable with all of those things as we were before. Why? Because humanity is trying to desperately find something to fill the void in our life when that is not a something that we need. It's a someone that we need. It's a relationship with our Creator. Other people, now I know nobody in this room, other people outside of this room, they'll pursue religion. So here's what that means. It means that humanity, some of us can come to the conclusion, okay, what's missing in my life is a relationship with God. I know that there is something that separates me from God, and so I need to become a religious person. Maybe if I can become more spiritual, maybe if I can be a better version of me, maybe if I can do some things in my life and clean some areas up and just live differently, then maybe the the gap between me and God that I know exists, I can close the gap and God will embrace me, and I can do enough maybe to cover the sin that I know is in my life. And so we pursue religion. And here's the reality. I know that game because that's the game that I played for a number of years of my life. When I was raised in church, I remember a time growing up where I was not in church. I knew the story of Jesus and I knew something was missing in my life. And here's what I thought. Man, if I can just be better, if I can just be good, if I can just be religious, if I can just be spiritual, if I can be better than the people around me and compare myself to them, I can find somebody. And here's the problem with that. There's really two issues. One, I consistently failed time and time and time again. Like the better version of me never lasted very long. The other thing is, is that, that that there was never really peace and contentment of knowing that God and I were in relationship with one another. I felt like there was always more that I needed to do. And maybe you relate to that. And here, here's why religion doesn't work, all right? Religion is man's attempt to pay the debt that we owe God with our good works. And let me just kind of illustrate it like this. If, If you were to go and say you wanted to buy a car, and I'm going to buy a car, and so you go to, let's say you go to Peter's Chevrolet, you find my buddy Jake there, and you say, hey, listen, I want to buy a a specific vehicle. There's a Suburban out there that I want, and this has got all the bells and whistles, and Jake looks at you and is like, that is a $75,000 Suburban. That's a really expensive vehicle, but I would be more than happy to sell it to you, and so you say, yes, I've got more than enough money, and so I want you to get it, and so they get it, they pull it around, you look at it, and now it's time for you to sign the contract, and they're like, who's going to be financing? You're like, no, 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 I'm not financing this. I'm paying and cash for it and you're like i got more than enough money to do it and so they're like man this is even better anything else you want to buy while you're in here captain cash so uh and so and, and so what you do in that moment is you reach into your pocket and you pull out a big old stack of monopoly money and you're like man i'm gonna make it rain in here right and what's going to happen in that moment? You're going to get laughed at. They're going to look at you and be like, what are you doing? They're going to say to you in this moment, that's a $75,000 Suburban. Your Monopoly money is no, of no value in here. While the, the Monopoly money might be great if you're playing the game of Monopoly, in the game of buying cars, it is worthless. We don't take that kind of currency. Here is what religion is. Religion is nothing more than monopoly money that men and women are trying to use to pay the debt that we owe God. And God is saying, listen, I love the fact that you come in here confident with all of that type of currency, but I don't take that kind of currency. Your righteousness is as filthy rags to me. And so well, here's, here's, here's the problem. The scripture tells us the issue of sin is serious. In Romans chapter 6, verse 23, here's what Paul writes. He says, for the wages of sin is death. You see, the separation that we have between us and God, this separation anxiety that we feel is real, and the debt that we owe God could never be repaid to, in order to close the gap between us and God. The debt is too great. The wages of sin is death. You know what a wage is, right? A wage is something you earn. So if you work you know, for $10 an hour and you work 40 hours, some of you mathematicians, how much money are you owed in that moment? I swear somebody said in one of the other services, $4,000. I'm like, I want to work for you. an hour for 40 hours. If you're going to pay me $4,000, I'm in, all right? So, So we know what a wage is. It's something you earn. So if you work so many hours for a certain amount of money, that's what you are owed. Listen, the Scripture says that the sin debt that we owe God, the wage that we've earned because of our sin is death. That's eternal separation from God, and ultimately that's the wrath of God falling on us. And so this is the state of our being Because of sin, we are separated from God and there's nothing we can do to bridge the gap. But here's what I love about Romans 6.23. It doesn't end there. Romans 6.23 goes on to say, for the wages of sin is death, but, but, The free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And this is what we're celebrating during Easter. This is what we're celebrating this weekend. The the reality is is that the sin debt we owe God is far too great for us to pay. But God in his grace and mercy has sent Jesus to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And in his death and resurrection, Jesus gives us and offers to us eternal life. You say, how, how does he... Do this. I'm glad you're asking those type of questions. So grab your Bibles real quick and go to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. I'm going to get you the context. We're going to start reading in verse 33. If you didn't bring your Bibles, that's okay. The the words will be on the screen behind me. Uh, Jesus is God in the flesh. He he came to, to live the life that we should have lived. And so Jesus lives a perfect life. He's preaching and he's teaching about the kingdom of God and what righteousness is. And uh, a lot of people are beginning to follow him. But at the apex of his ministry, when he should be kind of making a name for himself, everyone abandons him. He is arrested. He is handed over to the Roman authority under the hands of the leadership of the Jewish leaders. Jesus is condemned to die. He is beaten. He is whipped. He is mocked. He is spit upon. His beard is ripped from his face. He he is given a crown of thorns. He is nailed to a Roman cross. And that is where we find ourselves in in Mark chapter 15 verse 33. Listen to what it says. This is how Jesus offers life to us. It says, and when the sixth hour had come, listen to this, there was a darkness over the whole land from the ninth hour, uh, from the uh, sixth hour until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now listen, I, I want to kind of highlight a couple of things about this. The first is this, that, that within the Gospels, when you read all four Gospel accounts of the final moments of Jesus' life, in the three-hour span that he has on the cross, uh, th- there, there is uh, s- six miracles within that three hours that the four Gospels record. Six different miracles that happen in the final moments of Jesus' life. And we're going to only look at two of them this morning, but the first one is the one we see in verse 33. It says, according to the scriptures, that the, the final moments of Jesus on the cross from uh, the, the, the sixth hour until the ninth hour, that's around from noon until 3 p.m., that a darkness covered the entire region. Now, here's what's amazing. This is a miraculous event that that all of a sudden, in the middle of the day, when the sun was at its brightest, the sky grew dark and darkness fell. And this was a thick darkness, a darkness that impaired all vision. It was a a unique type of darkness. In fact, this is such an overwhelming miracle that it's not just recorded in the Bible. In fact, there are several secular records of this event happening. Uh, Origen is a North African uh, second century uh, theologian, and, and he writes in some of his writings uh, and cites a Roman historian, a Roman historian, a secular author who records this miracle that happened in the final hours of Jesus' life while he was on the cross another guy by the name of Tertullian, he was a second and third century theologian. He was writing a letter to one of his friends who was a pagan and he writes to him and speaks to him about the three hours of darkness that Jesus endured while he was on the cross and here's what he says. He says, you should know this because this is recorded in your annals and in your In other words, there is historical evidence that this event actually happened. In fact, there was a letter that was discovered that was written by Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate is the the leader that turned Jesus over to be crucified. There was a letter written by Pontius Pilate to to Tiberius Caesar explaining to him the circumstances around Jesus' death. And one of the things he mentions is the three hours of darkness during the time of Jesus' death. Say, why am I going through all of this? Because I want you to know this is not folklore. This is not myth. This is a real event that took place. And some people acknowledge it's a real event, and here's what they'll say. Oh, yeah, of course, it might have happened, but it was most likely nothing that. It was just circumstantial. It was probably a dust storm that took place there in the Middle East. That happens all of the time. The problem is, is that this, was, this event was happening during the wet season. There's no way there could have been a dust storm during that time of the year. Other people say it was probably just an eclipse. An eclipse happened. That happens all the time. Here's the problem with that. The first is the longest recorded eclipse in history is nine minutes. This was three hours. Secondly, the the lunar calendar is how the Jewish holidays were built around. The Passover happened at full moon. Impossible for an eclipse to occur during a full moon. What's the point? The point is this is a miraculous event that cannot be explained. That complete and utter darkness fell on the entire region. So what is it that's so significant about this detail in the story? What does the darkness indicate? And here's what it is. The darkness represented God's judgment that was falling on Jesus. That the punishment for sin, that the Jews would have understood this. They understood that darkness represented unusual sin and the judgment for it. That they understood that God's judgment, His wrath, was was, was coming out and expressed at times through darkness. In Revelation chapter 16, the fifth bowl of God's wrath that will be opened up in the end of days is what? It's the bowl of darkness. This is God's judgment falling on Jesus. This is what God is saying to the world. The the, the judgment that you deserve because of your sin is coming to Jesus. Do you you remember the Exodus account? In the Exodus account, you, you have... God delivering his people from the slavery of of Egypt after 400 years, and he does a series of plagues as, as judgments upon them, saying you need to let the people go. Do you remember what the ninth plague was? It was darkness for three days. Three days of darkness, utter darkness. What was the tenth plague? This is significant. The ninth plague, three days of darkness. What was the tenth plague? The death of the firstborn. Or the sacrificial lamb that would have covered the doorpost of God's people. So the ninth plague is darkness. The tenth plague is the firstborn and the sacrificial lamb that would be slain. And make the connection here. Jesus is on the cross. And in this moment, in this hour, the three hours of darkness falls on the land, signifying God's judgment is coming. And following the judgment, what happens? God's firstborn would die. Our sacrificial lamb would be slain on the cross. Here is what is happening in this moment. The sin of the world is being laid on Jesus. Your sin and my sin, every rape, every murder, every uh, violent act, every evil thought, every ill word spoken, every sin that's ever been committed is being laid on Jesus in this moment. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, that God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to become sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God in him is that the sin of the world was being laid on Jesus and the judgment of sin was falling on Jesus. He was dying in our place. This is what the scripture says, verse 34 says, at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why is Jesus crying in agony? You see, sin creates in our hearts a spiritual separation. That because of our sin, we've been separated from God. But because of the weight of the world of sin was falling on Jesus, Jesus, for the first time in eternity, listen, was experiencing separation from his Father. Is that We don't know how, but in some form, the Father was separating Jesus, was being banished from the presence of God like you and I have been banished from the presence of God. In other words, listen to this. Jesus, listen, for the first time in eternity, was, was experiencing separation from the Father so that the first time since creation, you and I might be reunited to him. This is what was taking place in this moment. Jesus was being forsaken by God for us so that we might be restored to God in him. I love what Skip uh, Heidsick says about this. He says, God treated Jesus the way that you and I deserve to be treated so that he could treat you and I the way that Jesus deserved to be treated. This darkness represents the judgment of God that you and I deserve. And Jesus standing in our place experiences a spiritual separation anxiety. He goes through the distress of being pulled from the Father in this moment because the weight of the sin's world was on his shoulders. And he was being the recipient of the wrath of God on our behalf. And see, this is the great news. This is what separates religion from the gospel, by the way. You want to summarize religion in four words? Here's religion in four words. I must do more. That's religion in four words. I must do more. The gospel in four words is Jesus in my place. And that's what was taking place on the cross. Jesus was dying in our place on our behalf. Look what happens in verse 37. Look at what this accomplishes for us. Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last Verse 37 gives us a clear picture of what Jesus accomplishes on the cross when the judgment of God falls on him. It says he uttered a loud cry and he breathed his last. Now, this is why I love the the fact that we have four Gospels. People have always asked this question. Why is there four Gospels? Why is there four counts? Because you have the story of Jesus being told from four different perspectives, filling in the gaps, different details that we want to know to have the fuller picture. So Mark tells us that Jesus cried out with a loud voice, right? But he doesn't tell us what he cried out. It doesn't tell us what he said but John John gives us the details. He tells us what Jesus said in this moment. It was one word. When Mark says he cried out with a loud voice there was one word that left the mouth of Jesus. It was this word, "to tell us To tell us To tell die literally translated means it is It's finished. Another way of of, of translating this is paid in full. This this word, to tetelestai, is a transactional term. In fact, there there have been uh, archaeologists have discovered documents and paperwork. So like if if you lived in this particular day and let's say you had a land deal where you were purchasing a piece of property for X amount of money, a contract would be written up that told you the amount that you owed for the land or the payments that you owed for the land. And when you made your final payment, they would write on the document on the contract to telestai. Paid in full. Finished. No more payments needed. And this is what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross: that he paid the pra- price of our sin. The payment for our sin that we owed God has been fully met in Jesus. Let me explain to you how, how this works. In the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, uh, God unveiled his plan of redemption through what's called a sacrificial system. Here, here's what that simply means: is that God by his grace created a means by which the wage of man's sin might be temporarily paid for. Man's sin is death, right? And so God made a, a way for man's sin to temporarily be paid for through the sacrifice of a bull or a, a ram or a goat or a lamb. And so we could offer sacrifices that were temporary, that that, that, that animal would act as a substitute payment. And he, here's how this worked. The system was just a temporary stay until the full payment could ultimately be made. In other words, here, here's the way I'll put it. These sacrifices only paid the minimum payments. Y'all know about minimum payments, right? It's the great scam of the credit card industry, right? Like, like, like this is the real deal. Like it's not just credit card companies. You know, banks do it. Do, I, I have student loans. I had student loans uh, from my time in college, and uh, they kind of use the same system of minimum payments. And uh, he, here's what I discovered. This is a confession to you, but also a little celebration for me, all right? Um, I finally this year paid off all of my student debt that I owed when I was in college. And the reason that's significant is because I left college about 20 years ago. I don't know why you're laughing. It's 20 years of pain for me, right? So here's what we did. When it was finally time for the, 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 the note to be paid, they, they allowed us to set up what's called a minimum payment plan, which means that we were paying $168.73. And, and so I'm like, okay, that's, that's reasonable enough. It's more than I want to pay, but it has minimum payments, I'll pay that. A few years later, I checked my balance. My balance did not decrease, it increased. Because payment paying the minimum payments does not even touch your principal. Here's what it's designed to do, to keep the bank satisfied until you can actually start making real payments, right? And so here's what was so frustrating about it. For all of these years, we've been paying the minimum payments only to discover that the principal is getting larger and larger, and we actually owe more and more debt. And then it hit me one day, I will be paying this forever. Like, I think when I get to heaven, God's going to be like, $168.73 forever. Forever. This is how this thing's going down, and so uh, through some some decisions financially, and finally we sold this house and our house, and so we decided we're paying this debt off. And I was so giddy. I, I called I called the I didn't I, you can you can go online and do this right. I didn't I want to talk to a person right. <laughs> this was a significant moment in my life, and so I get on the phone, and it's amazing to me that when you call to ask general questions, maybe about delaying a payment, you're put on hold forever. But as soon as you say, Hi, I'm, here. I'm going to make a payment, they're like, oh, the next available operator will be here. Hello. And they're there, right? And so I'm like, hey, listen, hey, this is my, my, my ID and this is my name. And, and he said, well, how can I help you? And I was like, hey, I just was going to check. Uh, I need to make a payment today. And he said, uh, uh, yes, sir, Mr. Connett, your, your payments are $168.73. I'm like, I know that, all right? I've been paying it for 15 years to you guys. And I said, I, what I need to do is I need to make a payment, but I need to know my balance first. And he says, well, your balance is, I'm not telling you. And... Uh, He gives me the balance, and then I I say to him, I was like, okay, I need to make a payment. He's like, okay, uh, would you like to make this month's payment of $168.73? I'm like, you can stop repeating that, okay? I want to make a different type of payment. He said, okay, so how much do you want to pay? I'm like, tell me the balance again, and I'm just baiting him into this thing. He's like, well, here's the balance. Here's what you owe in totality, and I said, that's what I'm going to pay, and it's like radio silence on the phone. And he's like, could you please repeat that again? I'm like, okay, I would be happy to repeat that to you. I'm here to pay it all. And he's like, well, the balance is, and he repeats the balance, are you sure you want to pay that amount? I'm like, I've never been more sure of anything in my life than I'm sure of that right now in this moment. I want to pay the entire balance. And he said, sir, are you sure this is the amount you owe? This is going to take some information from you. I'm like, I will give you whatever you need to know. Send the blood people over. I'll give them a sample. (laughs) And so we made the transaction and I'm just telling you, I was on the phone with this cat, and I'm like, I, I am ready to tetelestai this thing. <laughs> and there was such a freedom. When I hung the phone up, it was like the first time that I looked at my student loans, and I was like rejoicing. I'm like, finally, after all of the minimum payments, finally the debt is erased. Now, here is what we learn about Jesus. When he went to the cross, here's what Jesus was doing. He, he walks into the presence of God, and he says, I'm here to make a payment. But I'm not here to make a minimum payment. I'm not here to bring a lamb or a ram or a goat or a bull. I am here to offer myself. I don't want to just make a minimum payment that's going to delay. I want to pay it all. I'm going to offer myself fully so that we can tetelestai the sin debt that humanity owes. That is what Jesus did for you and me on the cross. This is the glory of the gospel. Is that he has paid the debt in full That our debt has been erased. Jesus satisfied the wrath of God on our behalf. Which leads us to the whole premise of the sermon for the morning. That we live with this spiritual separation anxiety, but what Jesus did for us allows us to enter into the presence of God. Once again, look what happens in verse 38. It says, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. You say, what is the significance of that? It was torn from top to bottom, the curtain in the temple. So let me just kind of unpack it like this. The temple in Jerusalem was the place where the sacrificial system was carried out. The temple was given to God's people, and really there were two major declarations of the temple. Let me give them to you. The first is this. The temple was God's way of saying to humanity, I want to dwell in your presence. And I want you to dwell in my presence. I want to be available to you. But the second thing that the temple revealed, that God is reminding us of, is that while I want to dwell in your presence, your sin does not permit you in my presence. And so in the temple, God gives limited access Here's what I mean. The temple was strategically built and had different rooms and places within it that signified the sin barrier that exists between us and God. The outer court was a place called the court of the Gentiles. Non-Jewish people would have to go in there, but they couldn't go any closer to the presence of God. And then you had the court of the women. We were able to get a little bit closer, but not any further. Then you had the court of the men. The men. And then you had the court of the priest. And then you had what was called the holy place. And only the priest could go in there to offer sacrifices. And then you had the final area, and that was called the holy of holies. That is where the Shekinah glory of God would dwell among his people. That is where the presence of God that we were created to experience dwelled the fullness of God's presence in that area and God is saying I want to dwell in your presence so I'm going to come and dwell among you but you're going to have limited access and only the high priest could go one day a year to offer a sacrifice so only the most holy man on the most holy day could enter in just for a brief moment to offer a sacrifice then he had to get out of there And God structured the temple like this, that between the holy place and the holy of holies, there was a curtain. There was a veil. It was massive. It was four inches thick. It was 30 feet wide. It was 60 feet tall. It was so heavy that it took 300 priests to maneuver the curtain. And this was a barrier representing the sin barrier that keeps us from the presence of God. God is in essence saying to his people, this is where you wanna be. This is what you were created for. This is what you long for. This is what your your greatest desires are. It is to be in my presence. But your sin creates a barrier. And so while you desire to be here, your sin keeps you out. You can't come in. You can't enter into my presence. And so this curtain was a representation that sin keeps us out. Everything in the temple declared to humanity, you don't belong. Stay out. And day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, a minimum would draw near to the temple, just to get close, just to get the proximity, only to know they could only go so far, until the scripture tells us about another miracle that happened at the death of Jesus. It's just when he's on the cross and he cries with a loud voice, "To die It is finished, paid in full. Something happened in the temple. It says in this moment when Jesus breathed his last, there are two specific details that it gives about this curtain. It says it was torn from top to bottom. The first detail that is given to us is it was torn. It doesn't say that the veil in the temple or the curtain temple tore. It says it was torn. You say, what's the difference? Mark wants us to understand that this is not just an event that happened. This was something that was done by someone. It didn't just tear, it was torn. This was something that was done actively by someone in this moment. And then he gives another detail that's significant. It was tore from top to bottom. This massive curtain was just miraculously just split from the very top to the bottom of it. It wasn't split from the bottom to the top. See, here's what religion does. Religion tries to tear the curtain from the bottom up. We try to create our own way in the presence of God. But in this moment, when Jesus died on our behalf, God says to humanity, now the curtain is opened. It's as if God reached down out of heaven with his finger and the father just says, I'm done with this. And he rips the veil and says, now you can come in. Separated no more. There is now access into my presence. There is now a way in for you that Jesus has created for us a way that we can come in. You see the separation anxiety that we are born into because of our sin. There is this longing. I want to know God. I want to draw near to God. There's something missing in my life. And here's what Christ has done. This is what we celebrate during the Easter holiday is that Jesus has made a way for us to enter into the presence of God. This is why I love the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews kind of shows us all of the symbolism of how Jesus Fulfills all that God has promised. Here's what the book of Hebrews says it says that Jesus is a new curtain that we enter into the presence of God through. He's a new curtain. He's a better curtain. Why? You see, the old curtain had one goal, had one purpose, and that was to say, Keep out. But Jesus, the new curtain, is better, and He says, Come in. And so the first curtain was a barrier that said, You can't go. Jesus is a door that's been opened that says, You are welcomed in. This is the great news of the gospel. You say, well, how do we know that Jesus' payment was enough? Like, how do we know that? You ready for it? It's called an empty tomb. It's called the fact that Jesus is alive. And the empty tomb is confirmation that what Christ has done for us on the cross is more than enough. Now, let me illustrate it like this. When I was on the phone with the dude from the um, student loan bank, when we ended the conversation after I gave him all the banking information, here's what he said to me on the phone. I loved, I'll never forget this moment. He says, congratulations, Mr. Connets. You have paid the note completely. He didn't use the word, but I know he wanted to. He wanted to say tetelestai. He says, the, the, he, here's what he said, the balance is zero. I just want you to know, the balance is zero. Congratulations, your debt has been paid. The balance is zero. And then he said this, but hey, here's what I need you to know. While I'm telling you the, the balance is zero, here's what you need to look for. In the next few days, you're going to get what's called an e-confirmation. You're gonna get an e-confirmation. That's an electronic confirmation. There's an electronic receipt that's gonna be emailed to you, and it's gonna verify. It's gonna be a a documentation that verifies, that gives you the confirmation that you need to have to be able to have evidence that your payment has been fully made and that your balance is zero. He said, so watch for that, and so I did. Over the next few days, I'm checking the email, and finally it came through. I opened it up, and there it was. There was this e-confirmation, and I opened it up, and it said, balance is zero. Payment has been made. And here is what we need to know this morning is that God the Father says to us, yes, I know that Jesus on the cross says it is finished. I know that he has said to you, hey, it is done, paid in full. But here's what you need to know. Hey, hey, there is an e-confirmation that you have that verifies that what Jesus did was enough. And it's called an empty tomb. Three days later, God sent an e-confirmation, an Easter confirmation. And that is the dead heart of Jesus began to beat. Blood began to flow from his veins. His eyes opened. He stood up. He rolled the stone away. He is alive today and that is confirmation to you and me that the debt of sin has been erased. That our payment has been made. There is no more chasm between us and God. We now have access through Christ into his presence. And this is what we celebrate. For some of you this morning, this is the greatest news that you've ever heard. You've heard the story, but here's the thing. that there There's some of you though, and here's what you're thinking. I just need to do more. I just need to clean up. I just need to get better. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says this, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in this that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Look up here at me. Jesus did not die for the cleaned up version of you, he died for the version of you that is marred and mired in sin. You see, listen, religion tells you to clean up. This is what Jesus offers is greater than religion. You know what Buddha's dying words were to his disciples? Buddha's dying words to his disciples is work hard for your salvation. You know what Jesus' final words were, his dying words? Paid in full. It's done. The gospel is not clean up. The gospel has come as you are. You may be thinking to yourself, this is what I need. I know that I need a relationship with God. What do I do? Here's what Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10 says. It says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. How do I experience this gift that Jesus brings? How do I experience reconciliation between me and God? How can I be separated no more? And here's the answer. You confess Jesus is Lord. That he died for your sin. That he resurrected. And by the way, let me tell you. If Jesus is alive, you've got one of two responses. Either either stay in your sin and experience God's wrath. Or bow a knee and declare him as Lord and let his death be your death and resurrection be your resurrection. So just confess Jesus. Jesus, I'm a sinner and I know you died for my sins and I know you resurrected and I want a relationship with you and I believe that you're the only way that I can be reconciled. And you say, what happens if I do that? Here's what the scripture goes on to say in Romans 10:13: For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Your sins will be forgiven. And you can be restored to God. You can enter into a relationship with him once again. And so this is the offer that Jesus makes. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads if you would. There are some of you in the room this morning, and this is exactly why Jesus brought you to today's service is because he wants to call you by name. He wants to forgive your sin. He wants to restore you to himself. If you've come in this place this morning and you're like, I don't, I'm uncertain about my relationship with God. I'm uncertain that, that I know him, that I've been forgiven. I'm uncertain about my future in eternity. Then here's what I want you to know this morning. It's okay for you to come in like that. It's okay for you to come in like that, but it would be a shame for you to leave like that. When Jesus is here this morning, he is offering you life. For some of you, there is this, this, this in your, stirring in your heart right now. Your heart is pounding. You're thinking, this is what I need. I'm uncertain. And, and if this is true, this could change my life. And this is kind of what I've been looking for. Listen, if that is going on in your heart, that is not you manufacturing that. That is not something that I am creating in you. That is the Holy Spirit of God wooing you to himself calling you to salvation, wanting to adopt you as his very own. And here's what I would say to you this morning. Surrender to him. Have your sins forgiven. Know that you have a relationship with him. Know that heaven is going to be your home. Know that you uh, have Jesus as your master and Lord. You say, what do I do? You just call on his name. And this is what that looked like for me. When I came to this realization, in a search service very similar to this, I just said, God, I am a sinner. And I believe that Jesus died for me and he resurrected. And I'm surrendering my life to you. And I want you to be my Lord. Save me. And he did. And for some of you this morning, this is the prayer that you're praying right now or the prayer that you need to pray. So right now, just in your own words, confess that to him. With no one looking around, I'm going to ask you to do me a favor. If you're here this morning and you have prayed... To receive Christ. You, you want salvation. Maybe you have already prayed this morning to receive Christ, or maybe you just want to talk to someone about that, but you're, you know that, that Jesus is calling you to himself today. Here's what I ask you to do. Right now, with no one looking around, I'm just going to get you to look up at me just in this moment. Just make eye contact with me. Thank you. Thank you. Just make eye contact with me. And here's here's what I'm going to challenge you to do. In the section in front of you, there there are some volunteers. There are some decision encouragers. And if you're looking at me right now, here's what I'm going to get you to do. This is a big decision in your life, and we don't want you to make it in isolation. We want to pray for you. We've got a resource we want to put in your hand and be able to help you on on this new journey. And so this is going to take some courage. But if you're serious about wanting your sins forgiven and and having a relationship with God, then I'm going to encourage you to do something. Uh, If you're looking up, I'm going to ask you just to quietly... And gently, with no one looking around, just make your way toward the person that's in your section right now. Just get up from your seat and come to that person in your section. Thank you. Thank you. Just right now, I know and just take some courage. Thank you. Just stand up from your seat and just come forward and grab the hand of the person in front of you. Thank you very much. This takes courage. Praise Jesus for this. We want to be able to pray with you and encourage you and help you begin this journey in your life this morning. Is there anybody else that would want to make their way forward to talk to someone, to be encouraged and say, I, I want to trust Jesus, and I, I, I don't know what that looks like, or maybe I do, and I just need to tell somebody, I want you to leave your seat right now. Listen, our decision encouragers are going to be here in the next few moments. And they're going to make themselves available to you. Maybe you looked up and you just did feel comfortable at that moment. In a moment, we're going to stand and we're going to sing. And at that moment, if you want to come and take the hand of one of our encouragers, do that. Or maybe some of you, people are still coming, continue to come if you, if you feel called to come. Maybe some of you, you're just going through a struggle right now. And you just need to know that, that Jesus has not abandoned you. Our encouragers also just want to pray for you. Maybe you're going through a struggle going through a season in your life where you just need to be encouraged, we want you to know that we're available for you as well. So I'm going to pray and then we're going to stand and sing and our encouragers are going to be available. We want you to come and be encouraged as we sing and celebrate what Jesus has done. Father, we love you. We thank you that you are a God that saves. You're a God that calls us by name. Father, that you have allowed us to have access into your presence. I pray that we could worship you like men and women who believe it who have been brought from death to life. God, may you be glorified over the next few moments in this time. Let there be a freedom for those who need to talk to someone, those who need to still trust in you as Savior, those who are going through a struggle, that they would feel the freedom to come and find men and women who would encourage them where they are. Father, we love you and we thank you. and We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, let's stand and let's sing and let's celebrate the work of Jesus. And if you need to be prayed for, our encouragers are available.